Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Well, good afternoon, everyone. It is Tuesday, October the 24th, 2023. It is currently 2.39 p.m. Central Time, and I am coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. And if I'm being honest with you, I don't really know how to begin this episode. Sometimes I have I what I think is maybe a clever way of opening a podcast. Sometimes I try to be funny. Maybe sometimes I try to be a little too creative. Sometimes I'm just very matter of fact. I do a lot of times, I kind of... Kind of my just true and tried formula is I tend to a lot of times try to frame everything by starting with a question. Here's the question. And then we spend 40 minutes, an hour, an hour and 15 minutes, however long, typically working on something related to that question. But I don't have anything creative. I don't have a question. I don't have anything funny. I just have, well, we spent... A little bit of time yesterday talking about this. So I, in some ways, I just want to move forward, but I do feel like we need to go backwards a little bit and try to really get everyone on the same page because what happened yesterday was kind of just a very impromptu type of thing. I, I get this message and I'm like, okay, what do I do with this? Let's just go upstairs, turn on the microphone and go live. And just try to start working through it. And then you realize when you start looking at the, the article, it's what, 21, 22, 22 paragraphs, something crazy. And then you kind of realize this is going to take a long time to work through. So we're going to go back, kind of look briefly, go through the paragraphs that we've already covered and then try to advance this as much as possible. I don't want this to turn into three or four parts, but if it needs to, then it needs to. The email inbox clearly indicated by its <laughs> very loud silence that maybe people were not as invested or interested in this as possible. Someone did send me a related article. So I guess it wasn't complete silence. It wasn't complete silence. Someone did send me a related article that we may need to look at. But I, I don't know if the overall feeling of the listening audience was, and he stumbled upon something that's very important that may be giving us great insight into where the church is headed. And maybe we need to pay close attention to this. I don't know if that's the feeling everyone walked away from from yesterday's live broadcast. I think a lot of people are like, oh, okay, that was interesting, kind of shrugged their shoulders and moved on. But I, I still feel that this is something we have to look at because it could indicate where the church is headed. And if it's indicating where the church is headed, we probably should be a little concerned and a little bothered. So are you ready to go back to it? All right, so let me pull up the article itself, all right? Let me pull up the article itself. Here is the article. Uh, the article comes from newrepublic.com, newrepublic.com. I think the original article, well, I, I take that back. I think the original place I saw it was, I don't even remember how it all went together. I, I, there was a number of different things that I think I saw, but I tracked it down to the original source. The original source is newrepublic.com. That's the original source. Where it was original for me, I don't know. I don't remember how I stumbled upon it and, and all the details related to it because I'm always reading so many different things and people are sending me different things. Sometimes I always forget, like, wait a minute. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta chart this out. It all started here. Then it went here. Okay. But. I have the original article pulled up, newrepublic.com, all right? So let's go back through this. Let's try to reset the table, per se, and then let's move forward and try to figure out if this is giving us some insight to where the evangelical Christian church is headed in the future, right? It is that time of year. We're fast approaching November where I do a lot of trying to speculate of where the church may be going. So, and I'm, I'm, I'm always doing that to some level, right? That's why we have a podcast series called Eye on Christianity. I'm always keeping my eye on what's going on in Christianity with always a hope of figuring out where it's headed. 
And a lot of times when I figure out where it's headed, I figure out, I, or at least I come to the conclusion, I don't want to go there. Okay. I don't know where it's headed, but I don't want to go there. So, um, is, I, I, I think this is a very similar situation. So are you ready? We're going to move quickly. Um, remember there's a part one. So if I move too quickly, Go listen to part one. Here we go. Here is the headline. This was published on October the 23rd, 2023. So the original date of this article was yesterday. So we were, so I was maybe a couple of hours behind the actual publication, the publishing of this article, but within a couple of hours of its being published, maybe more than a couple of hours, but the same day. We were already talking about it. I wish I could say that about every article, but then all I would ever do is podcast. But I, that's a different subject. Here we go. Headline, the evangelicals calling for war on poor people. The evangelicals calling for war on poor people. And as I said yesterday, when I saw this, I was like, wait, 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 wait. When did a war de- get declared? Why wasn't I notified? Why are evangelicals calling for war on poor people? What did I miss? What is going on, right? Now, this article that I'm reading doesn't have the photograph that the other one did of a, obviously a large megachurch, huge, cro- uh, a huge choir, giant screen, a big American flag, and all these men standing on the stage singing and someone in the crowd with their hands lifted up. I don't know what church it was, but that's the photograph they had for this article. And then it says the evangelicals calling for war on poor people. Now, here is the little tagline underneath the headline. You ready? A new, strike that, new antisocial strain of the prosperity gospel is making its way into pulpits and breeding new hostility towards the least fortunate Americans. Now, I don't believe that tagline existed in the article that I was reading from yesterday. I decided to track down the original article. Um, and I, I don't know if that tagline existed yesterday. Maybe it did, but I, I want to make sure today we stress this tagline. All right. So the evangelicals calling for war on poor people that already has me at least somewhat confused, somewhat perplexed, but dare I say, interested in trying to figure out who's involved in this war, why is it being declared, and what is going on. The tagline really gets me interested because a new, so something new is happening, a new something is arising within Christianity. Okay, I want to know the new because sometimes the new thing becomes the end thing, which determines the direction of the church moving forward. Remember, there was a time, just think about this, there was a time, there was probably a news article saying, Rick Warren will be releasing a book called The Purpose Driven Life, or Rick Warren will be releasing a book, an upcoming book called The Purpose Driven Church. Can you imagine that there were people who read those articles, gave that no thought, and those books went on to completely, in many cases, transform the church and determine the direction of Christianity? I mean, there's, there's different times that those things happen, right? Where, where you're kind of given a little insight that this is going to happen and no one pays any attention. And then afterwards, Christianity tries to react. I hate the reactive nature of Christianity. I think we should be more proactive. So if something is new, a new anti, an anti-social strain of the prosperity gospel, I want, I want to know what's going on. Now, I put forth my, the word antisocial yesterday when we read that word, that caught me a little off guard because I'm like, wait, there's a new antisocial element of, of Christianity that's arising. I, I was caught off guard by what they mean by antisocial. So we're going to go back and readdress that, but let me remind you of my basic hypotheses of where Christianity is handed. I'm going to, I'm going to restate this and you're going to hear me repeat this numerous times. My basic hypotheses as of October the 24th, 2023, which it could change, you know, 30 minutes from now, but my basic hypotheses is this. The pandemic clearly demonstrated to millions of churchgoers that they could obtain Bible teaching 
maybe very good Bible teaching from the comfort of their home using their phone, tablet, television. They have access to millions and millions of sermons and Bible studies and devotionals, and that many people started raising questions about, well, then why go to church? And church attendance has suffered severe drops depending on which which statistics you're looking at. But according to most statistics, church attendance is plummeting. Why? Because many people realize, well, why get dressed, get in a car, drive to a church that maybe I like the teaching, maybe I don't like the teaching, but it's still a sermon when I, by, by the time I even get to church, I could have already listened to a sermon. And by the time I would have gotten home from church, technically I could have probably listened to two more. I probably could knock in three sermons and the time that it would take me to just get dressed, go to church and then turn around and drive back home and then figure out what to do for lunch. So a lot of people, I think, started questioning, what are we doing? We're paying all of this money for a building, for a staff. We're spending all of this effort and time to go to a place where someone's going to stand and open a Bible and preach. I can hear all the preaching and teaching from home. So I think it started impacting people's church attendance, at least to some level, right? And And it made me even call into question, what are we doing? You drive by all of these huge buildings. They're empty most of the time. What are they doing in those buildings? What are they actually? And you act, you think about all the money it takes to maintain the building, the bills. And you're like, what are you, what are those people actually producing for the amount of money it takes to sustain that institution, that organization? That organization could, could probably produce far more content in a completely different format and just destroy the entire building. But. Now, that doesn't get into the theology of it. That just gets into the practicality of it. But that practicality, I think, raised a lot of questions. I say, so I think a lot of churches right now are looking, going, how do we get people back? How do we get people involved? How do we get people here? And I think many churches are actually marketing that the solution to their problem is not an antisocial strain of Christianity, but a very pro-social, pro-community And I've talked about here in the local area, one of the big assemblies of God churches here in Abilene, their new marketing campaign is don't do life alone. Don't do life alone. You need the church so that you have the social aspect. You have community. You don't need to be isolated. You don't need to be lonely. That the real marketing of the church now is your social connection and your social interaction versus doctrine, theology, and preaching. People can get that anywhere. But you don't get the personal aspect unless you get up in the morning, get dressed, get in your car and drive to church. And we will ensure that we formulate things here so that you can be meet the social needs. So I view that the social aspect is going to become more prominent within churches than the theological aspect. That the social aspect is now going to dominate even the teaching aspect. That's where I feel the church is headed in a more social, almost a more social club way, but it's going to be viewed as a very spiritual thing because we live in a time that people are isolated and they're lonely because of the pandemic and because of social media. And so we need to get back to humans connecting and the church is going to see that as their spiritual mission to to. Uh, make that happen. That's where I think the church is headed. This is saying that there's a new antisocial strain. What do they mean by antisocial? Let's see if we can articulate what they mean here. So I'm going to go through this now relatively quick, but I wanted to at least put forth my hypothesis where I think the church is headed versus where they are going to point us to. They state it this way. Here is the tagline again. A new antisocial strain of the prosperity gospel is making its way into pulpits and breeding new hostility towards the least fortunate of Americans. So this new antisocial strain of the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel is old, but it's a new strain of it. And it's making its way into pulpits across America, and it's breeding a hostility towards the least fortunate of Americans. We need to investigate, we need to uncover, and we need to see where this is happening and what is going on and how to address it.
right? Then they, they, then, then the first paragraph, which we discussed yesterday, we're going to read it quickly. A God who does his best work in the dark hours is an integral, is integral to the story of American evangelical Christianity. The stuff of country music songs and conversions and roadside motels. Jesus tends to come to people at their lowest and loneliest. The only problem is that some God, that some of God's most pernicious modern day apostles understand this all too well. So they say an integral part of Christianity is this idea that God does his best work in the darkest hours. When you're hopeless, helpless, lonely, you have nothing, God steps in. And this is the stuff of country music and, you know, stories of someone being converted because they're at the end of their rope and they're in a broken down hotel and they see a Bible. That's when God steps in. They said, that's an integral part of the Christian story. However, some of God's most pernicious modern day apostles understand that narrative all too well. And at a time when fewer and fewer believers are going to church, it is consumption in these dark times that illuminates a deeply antisocial shift in evangelical Christian beliefs. So something is shifting, they think. An antisocial shift is occurring, and it's being put forth by, as they refer to them as, pernicious apostles, modern-day apostles. They're using the term, obviously, not in a theological way, just like these, they may claim to be apostles because of the movement they are a part of. So they may claim to be apostles, but these new so-called apostles understand that when people are at their bottom, that's when God steps in and they're utilizing it to basically bring a new, deeply antisocial shift into the evangelical church. And to mix into that this is more and more people are not attending church, which they're going to formulate into this. Next paragraph, moving quickly. Chief among the new doctrines, so there's a bunch of new doctrines, but chief among them is the idea that God rewards seeding, S-E-E-D-I-N-G, seeding, that is the sowing of financial donations to churches or favored online preachers with a material harvest in return. So a chief doctrine that's being put forth, they're claiming, by these modern day apostles is that if you sow in, you plant a seed into this ministry, you're going to harvest material gain in return. Now, on one hand, there's nothing new about that. That's old. That's been a part of Christianity forever, this idea that, hey, if I give money here, God's going to bless me materially in return. So it's like an investment idea. Give money, I will get more in return. That's been a part of Christianity forever. So I don't know what's new about that. So what's the new element? Well, let's see where they take this, all right? The prosperity gospel might sound as old-fashioned and feel as familiar as a preacher in a three-piece suit, but a new and cynical version, so now there's a new version of this, a new and cynical version of the prosperity gospel is making a comeback across ministries, both old and new, among people who go to church and those who get their faith online. So this is showing up inside the church. And it's showing up in the online Christian world. There's something new, a new form of this prosperity gospel. The basic concept is there. You give us money, you plant a seed, you will get a material harvest in return. That element is still true, but there's something new to it. There's a new element to it. What is this new element that is supposedly infiltrating churches and even Christian ministries online? What is the new aspect? I want to know the new aspect. Let's go to the next paragraph. A recent survey by Lifeway Research found that 52%, 52, over half, of American church-going Protestants say their church teaches that God will bless them if they give more money to their church and charities. Now you say, okay, 52% of people believe that. Who cares? This is why it's significant. 
Are you ready? It is significant because that figure is up from 38% of churchgoers in 2017. So in 2017, 38% of people said, hey, my church is teaching me that if I give money to ministry, plant a seed, I'm going to get a material harvest in return. But now in 2023, 52% are saying that that's what they're learning in church or from the ministry that they're listening to. 38 to 52%? As one person said, that's an almighty leap. And that's according to the executive director, Scott McConnell, who attributes this shift to the pandemic. Now, he says, hey, the reason this dramatic shift is taking place is the pandemic. Now, once again, I'm going to step in with my own analysis and forget the article for a second. I do believe, and I think this was inevitable. I think we have to acknowledge this. The pandemic had a profound impact on the church itself. For many, it became very detrimental on the church financially. And if as a result of the pandemic, more and more people are not attending on a regular and consistent basis, well, when you reduce the number of people attending, let's just say this in the most pragmatic, fleshly way possible, the number of people giving decreases. Or the potential givers decrease. For every person who leaves your church, well, now you've lost another potential giver. Whether they were giving or not giving, you does so. So as a result, the more people leave, the greater financial burden the church begins to face. Not only the burden of smaller crowds, so then, so then you begin to have less money. You have less money. Well, then what do you cut? What programs do you cut? Uh, wait, you got to pay for the building. You got to pay for all of this. Well, it's going to be inevitable once that decrease begins to happen, the churches are going to have to begin to push teaching on stewardship, on giving, and inevitably for some, they will tell the people you need to give because, or uh, let me, let me rephrase it. They typically say you have an opportunity to give to support the work of God. And if you do so, you will be blessed. And it maybe they emphasize the material harvest that the people could get. Maybe they try to emphasize the spiritual, but they're going to really sell it. Like you give, you get blessed. You give, it benefits you. And they have to do that because now they have a smaller pool of people and they've got to motivate them to give to maintain all the money it requires to keep that building going and to keep the staff hired. Because no matter how much we like it, no matter how much we, how much we dislike it or like it or hate it or love it, whatever that, whatever our feelings are, are irregardless. Because the reality is there's a very much a business aspect to the way ministry works. Nobody likes to state that. Nobody, because it's fleshly. It seems, it seems cheap and crass and, oh, there's just so much about it we don't like. But the reality is drive by when you pull up at your church, look at it. How much money does it cost keeping that, that operation running? How much, how much money does it cost? How much money has to pour into that building week after week after week just to make, just to keep the status quo going? Now, no matter how much you don't like to think of it that way, it's required. Well, when the numbers go down, the church has to increase its, it's marketing campaign. It's, it's giving stewardship program in order to maintain that money. Now, what I would always ask is out of all the money it takes to maintain that place, what are you really getting from it? And sometimes I will argue it, there's, there's something wrong here. So I do believe that maybe the reason more people in 2023 are being taught this in their church. It's because the church feels like their hands are tied. Look, we bring in more money or it goes away. We're going to have to get rid of this program, this program. We're going to have to get rid of this person on staff and we're going to have to do something. Well, nobody wants to be in that position. So you then pull out a tried and true way of teaching. Hey, 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 hey. You have an opportunity to plant a seed into this ministry. And by planting the seed, you're going to harvest a benefit. It's going to be positive for you. Now, when the reality is, if you send me money to support this podcast, I'm the one who benefits from it. I'm the one 
who benefits from it. Let's, let's not pretend. Now you say, well, it, I could benefit because you may be able to increase the teaching. Maybe so. But the bottom line is at, at the very, very basic level, I'm going to be the one who benefits. I don't have to worry about money. I don't have to worry about things. I can buy new equipment. I can, I can do whatever. So, so I, I'm, I'm never going to try to sell it that way, but I can understand why Christianity always sells everything by spiritualizing it. This isn't, this is built into the DNA of Christians. I've stated it a million times. Let me state it again. You can have a, a building across the street where they decide on a, Sunday night or a Saturday night that everyone's going to get together. They're going to have some food. They're going to have some conversation, maybe play some games, and they're just going to call it a party, a get together, a night of fun. Across the street, you have a building. This time it's a church. The people are going to get together, have food, maybe play some games and have a good time. And magically, Christians will call it fellowship. We're doing something spiritual. We're doing something godly. We're doing something that will benefit ourselves spiritually. Now, you're getting together, eating food, talking about the weather, and playing some games. You're not doing anything spiritual, but you love to spiritualize it. So you think it's so. Same thing when churches operate business. Hey, we need money to operate, but we got to spiritualize it. If you give us money, then spiritual blessings will come upon like there's some kind of spiritual transaction taking place. Now, there may be spiritual benefits that come from giving because you're now exercising self-sacrifice. You're denying self. You're dying to self. There is some spiritual benefits from it. I'm not going to deny that there aren't any, but I'm saying we so sell it that way when the reality is, look around, everyone. See this building? See me? See this equipment? See everything? It costs money. You don't give. Things start going away. That, that like that, it, it, it's just as fleshly when you really break it down to that level, but we don't like to admit it. So the church always spiritualizes it. So it sounds as like something spiritual is taking place. We do that with everything. All right. So he says it's because of the pandemic. Now, The COVID-19 years, he says, had a real effect on the way many believers see the relationship between their faith and their personal finances, both positively and negatively. There was a lot of frustration just on the financial side, whether people were out of money or they couldn't really spend the money they had them the way the way they wanted, largely in the form of stimulus checks. They didn't feel very prosperous. Okay, so he says a lot of ways people viewed money changed during the pandemic. I think what happened is the pandemic hurt the church financially. Less people have come back, and so they need money. So it's changing the way church is teaching. Uh, that's the way I'm looking at it. He goes, now continue. Um, it's a discontent that cuts across religious lines, but with many pastors and congregations forced to endure what they experienced as government restricting their ability to attend church, these resentments were often magnified among the faithful. And the return to normal life, McConnell believes that the inflation that followed left a lot of people with a sense that even if they've done well, they don't feel as in control of their finances. Enter the church, and more specifically preachers, who specialize in the health and wealth form of faith. Quietly, outlets such as television channel INSP, the Inspiration Network, the rebrand of Jim Baker's PTL Television Network, have become a fixture in the top 20 highest rated channels in the nation, with viewership increasing 1,171% since 2010. So these channels have gained a foothold in American households. So he says, another thing has changed. You now have these faith-based TV channels. They're in the top 20 of all television channels. Their viewership has increased over 1,000%. So more people are watching them. And because they're watching them, they feel frustration about their money. Whatever the case may be, we're creating a situation now where this new teaching steps in. And it has a platform on these channels to be preached. So here we go. Here's the next paragraph. Prosperity preachers. Prosperity gospel preachers no longer need to ply their trade on minor Christian broadcasting networks. They can speak to people on mainstream channels at all hours. 
For those with cable, Inspiration TV, the Inspiration's online arm, broadcast a prosperity gospel message around the clock. Osteen and his cohorts might have captured an older television audience, but there's a whole new breed of prosperity preachers who specializes in the motivational Christianity that is made for online spaces. So, because these channels exist... He's saying that there's a new breed of these prosperity preachers who are bringing a new message to a new audience. All right. So, so far, so good. We, we covered this yesterday. All right. Next. Then this is interesting. For all of its certainty, and this is interesting, for all of its certainty, social media algorithms favor muscular Christianity. I don't know exactly what muscular Christianity is. I said that yesterday. I will repeat myself today. Drive During the pandemic, when people couldn't go to church, the preacher who had the online infrastructure in place to broadcast sermons and accept donations found a whole new audience, members of mom and pop churches who had nowhere else to go. Those who ended up getting their Christianity from Facebook rather than from the pulpit found it all too easy to fall down into some extreme theological rabbit holes. And without anyone to bounce new ideas off of, they had no mooring. There was no congregation to moderate radical ideas. So they're saying now another thing that created this new problem that they're pointing us to where evangelicals have declared war on the poor is that many people who during the pandemic are not going to church or maybe haven't gone back to church have now because of algorithms on social media, those algorithms have pointed them to certain theological rabbit holes that are in many cases extreme and are not biblical Christianity and people have fallen down those rabbit holes and how to get them back, nobody seems to know. Now, once again, to me, this makes me very frustrated with churches, right? Churches who have buildings, They got all these buildings and all these rooms and all of this staff and all of this money and all of this equipment. They produce so little content for online consumption. I don't understand what they do. You, 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 you can have a, you get paid a full time salary, a full time salary. You've got a building you can go to 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You've got rooms you could turn into podcast studios. You could be producing content after content after content, hour after hour. But so many pastors are not interested in doing that. They're like, nope, not interested in doing it. I have a hard enough time just getting my sermon ready on Sunday. I don't understand that. How do, how do you have such a hard time getting a sermon ready on Sunday? What is the problem? I, I've heard preachers say that. I couldn't do Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday. That's just too much. What is, what is the problem? I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't get it. But those churches then not producing the content, but because of social media, because of the pandemic, many people are not going back to church. So they're online. Well, what do they find? They stumble down these rabbit holes to extreme wrong theology because so many others are not doing anything to reach them. So once again, what are you paying all that money to have a church who's doing so very little to produce content? What are you getting for the amount of money that you're spending? I know I look at it in a very practical way, but it bothers me. So you have all of these people who are basically drifting down these rabbit holes. They go on to say, Scott McConnell believes that this bombardment of new ideas has disrupted conventional Christian teachings. We have access to so much knowledge and so many, and so many information sources. He says that, he says, and unless believers are intentionally returning to the Bible, few have had the time to check their credibility. So we have all of, so we do have all of this content out there. We do. The problem is so many times the good churches are not battling that content with their own content. And when I say battle it, it doesn't mean you have to address it or correct it. It just means you just keep producing hours and hours and hours of good teaching so that it has a chance to compete with those algorithms. So when people are seeing the bad teaching, they may see you in their algorithm and they may get a chance to hear what you have to say. So in that sense, you're combating it. Here, proponents of the prosperity gospel, whether online or on television, can speak out from both sides of their mouth. For the well-healed success is, is an obvious reward of faith. For the disadvantaged, a God who is looking after them in this life, as well as the next, dangles a golden carrot at a time when social mobility is becoming harder to come by due to increasing in, uh, 
and equality. So they're saying the prosperity gospel really speaks out of two sides of their mouth. They speak to two audiences. Hey, for those of you doing really good, you're, you're doing great. You're doing awesome financially, health, everything. This is a sign. This is a proof. Uh, and this is a reward of your faith. This shows that you're godly. This shows that you're doing good. Look at how great, how much God has blessed you. You've got money. You've got prosperity. You've got health. You've got material goods. This is a sign God is rewarding you. So they can preach that message to the people already doing good. And then for the people who are doing poorly, they can say, hey, 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 if you'll be show enough faith and plant a seed in this ministry, you'll be rewarded and you'll have all of those things that they have so they can preach to both audiences dangling in a sense the same carrot because if you're already being rewarded for your faith and you have all of this stuff well of course you're going to keep giving because you want all of those rewards keep coming in and if you don't have it you're going to give so that you can have it so really it just becomes a very fleshly carnal and de- theological system that is all about basically what you give so they can do that and they can speak that way. All right. Um, this might go some way to explaining why the Lifeway study of church going Protestants found that, that uh, found that those most likely agree that God will bless them if they give money to the church and charities are most commonly found among these demographics. So we talked about this yesterday, that more and more people now are starting to believe this message. More and more people are starting to adapt and accept this message. It's increasing. It's not decreasing. There was a time it seemed like that prosperity gospel had run its course and it kind of imploded on itself and people moved away from it. But it appears that more and more people are accepting it from many different demographics and it offers all the different demographics where people are accepting this teaching. All right. Now we're going to skip all of that. Now, here we go. In the month of May, Jason Matera, right? That's how I'm going to say his name, Matera. Jason Matera, son of Joseph Matera, one of the most influential modern prophets of the new apostolic reformation, which emerged from the Pentecostal charismatic tradition that is sweeping all of evangelical Christianity before it, wrote a piece outlining a new direction for prosperity and theology in the article titled A Biblical View of Work and Welfare, Matt Tara Jr. opined that while Christians should help to alleviate poverty, they are not under any obligation to help indolent bums. So people, such people, he added, are not entitled to our generosity. Now, this is someone who's the son of someone who was very involved in the new apostolic reformation. Jason Matera, Matera is how I'm going to pronounce his name. I did listen to some different ways, but that's the way I'm going. And that he wrote an article which is demonstrating this new shift within the prosperity world. There's a new teaching within this prosperity world that seems to be very antagonistic to those who may be poor. Let me read that statement again that he wrote in this article. The name of the article, A Biblical View of Work and Welfare. Someone sent me a link to it, so I have the entire article, but here we go. So he opined that while Christians should help to alleviate poverty, they are not under any obligation to help indolent bums. Such people, he added, are not entitled to our generosity. Hey, hey, we, we, There's some people we don't have to help. There's some people we don't need, who don't deserve our generosity. Whoa, what what is happening here? What is going on? Let's see where this flows from. While the concept of prosperity gospel has always had some latent hostility to the poor, that your circumstances belie a lack of faith, or at least that you're not doing it right, Matatera's view highlights an escalation of prosperity gospel thinking that says the quiet part out loud. So so what they're saying is there used to be a time that within prosperity gospel, there was kind of a kind of a quiet, hidden, almost dislike for the poor because it's basically like you're poor because you're not doing things right. You're poor because you're not being blessed by God because you're not doing it the right way. There was almost kind of, as they said, a latent, how do they refer to it as? 
a latent hostility towards the poor. But now, in this new strain, they're saying it boldly. Hey, what? look, those people who just won't do the right thing and they're poor and they're in poverty, they're basically bums. They don't deserve our help. Whoa, that, that seems to be a major shift. Let's see how far they take this. And Matt Tara's vision, which appears rooted in a much, in a much right wing talking points as in theological ideas, there are clear worldview implications for Christians to consider on the topic of work and welfare. Um, an influencer who made his name creating a whites only scholarship while at college, he concedes that Christians should be at the tip of the spear when it comes to looking after the poor, but largely for other Christians. The unfortunate, he writes, have chosen the path of poverty. So there's this mentality that, hey, hey they chose their path. That's on them. It's not our problem. Now, I'm going to I'm going to argue a little bit here. I don't think this is new. I don't think this is new. I really don't. They see it as a new strain of of prosperity gospel. I do not believe it's a new strain of the prosperity gospel. I'm going to make a completely radically different argument. Because I have seen this attitude typically demonstrated in the words of Christian men it's usually Christian men. Like when it comes to Christian men, you can almost, they're, they're, you're, this is what I have seen. Witness, if you disagree with me, that's okay. There's a propensity within Christian men to say things like, for example, if there's a problem going on in the Middle East or something, we should just nuke the place. We should just turn it into a parking lot, like a very masculine, like, yeah, just blow them all up. Like no worry about human life, just war, no compassion, just just annihilate them. Yeah, war. Very pro-gun, pro-gun. Yeah, I got a gun and, and you know, if someone breaks into my house, I'll kill them. Very like this very masculine kind of way. And when it comes to sometimes those in poverty, I've heard Christian men, very similar where they're lazy, they're bums, they're and and not show much compassion, generosity, or love. I have have heard that in Christian men. And I I trace it back to something different than the prosperity gospel. I think the pros, this new strain of the prosperity gospel, it's not a new theological thing. They're gonna look for theological justification for it. But it, I, I'm sorry, I keep doing this with my pencil. I keep doing this with my pencil. Whenever I start thinking, I pick up a pencil. So I apologize for that. But I'll try not to hit the desk with it. But I I believe what that this is more proof of what I've been yelling and screaming about for it feels like my whole Christian life. This is the ongoing political hijacking of American evangelicalism. I started hearing Christian men make certain comments about things that did not sound like Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. They didn't sound like Paul. They didn't sound like Jesus. They sounded like Rush Limbaugh. I started hearing Christians start sounding more like Bill O'Reilly than Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, or the Apostle Paul, or Jesus. I started hearing Christian men sound more like Sean Hannity than Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, or Paul, or Jesus. I started hearing Christian men sound more like Tucker Carlson. I started hearing Christian men demonstrate the political hijacking of their faith because they were talking and giving talking points that sounded like Donald Trump's Twitter account. Then it, well, he's not on Twitter anymore and it's not called Twitter anymore. His social media account, Truth Social, whatever the case may be, started sounding like that. And whenever you would talk to them, you're like, could you sound like a Christian for five minutes? But whenever you called it out, they would immediately try to quote some scripture. Well, the Bible says you'll always have the poor with you. And, and, and Jesus told them to buy a sword. And, and, and well, you know, there was, there was war in the Old Testament. Like, just always go for the most, like, I hate to say it. And I know I'm going to sound mean. 
lack of any true exegetical, in-depth intellectual reasoning, but a very politicized way. And and I cannot speak for Christian women, but I can. I would always hear it within the men, and I would be like, "What in the world? Hey, maybe maybe when you're in your car during the day, how about turn off Rush Limbaugh, listen to some sermons." How about spending, instead of spending three hours watching Fox News primetime lineup, you turn off Fox News and you see what Jesus had to say. I don't think this is new. I think that they are simply seeing the political hijacking of the American church now be given a theological cover. Let's see where else they take this. We're going to go quickly. All right. We're going to go quickly here. All right. Um, they say this is a worldview that seeks to wage not a war against poverty, but a war against the poor instead. Those who have in this view shown insufficient faith. So, so let me read that again. This is a worldview that seeks to wage a war not against poverty, but a war against the poor instead. And the poor they define as those who have shown insufficient faith. See, poor people are those who don't have sufficient faith. Poor people are those, they're so lazy. They're such bums. They choose this because if they would just demonstrate faith and do the right thing, they wouldn't be in poverty, of course. This might come as a surprise to anyone with an even passing knowledge of the teachings of Jesus, but it represents the culmination of a long strand of American Protestantism that gained hold after World War II. They're going to go back to then. Okay, I can't, I, I'm, I'm drawing it from my own personal experience. I saw it in the 90s with the rise of Rush Limbaugh. I started hearing men in the church sound like Rush Limbaugh. And they would state it as if somehow there was spiritual justification for it. And I'm like, I don't get this. Where is the disconnect among uh, uh, Christian men? They date it back to a type of Christianity or Protestantism that gained hold after World War II. Emerging from the New Thought Movement, espoused by Ralph Waldo Emerson and friends in the 1830s, ideas about mind power found an amped up audience in America's new world primacy. Reds were under the beds uh, and evangelicals believed that this was an existential threat to the self-made God-fearing man. Fretting that the New Deal was welfare masquerading as communism Protestant leaders who until then had largely set themselves outside and above the political realm began making common cause with a political opponents of Franklin D. Roosevelt. Historian of the prosperity gospel, Kate Baller, describes the merging of faith and conservative politics as incorporating the American gospel of pragmatism, individualism, and upward mobility. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. They do take it back to a merging of Christianity with politics. That's where, that, that's where Christianity became, American Protestantism became corrupted. Corrupted, not theologically corrupted, ideologically corrupted. Our theology was corrupted by a political ideology. And when I read part of that, it sounds like Glenn Beck is what it sounds like. All right. So let me read this again. All right. Fretting that the New Deal was welfare masquerading as communism. That literally sounds like something from Glenn Beck. Protestant leaders who until then had largely set themselves outside and above the political realm began making common cause with political opponents of Franklin D. Roosevelt. As a historian of the prosperity gospel, Kate Bowler describes the merger of faith and conservative politics as incorporating. So here's faith. And then what did they incorporate into it? An American gospel of pragmatism, individualism, and upward mobility. Wow. That, that shows where things started changing, right? Something started changing. Let's, let's see where they take this. At the time, at the same time, a renegade movement called New Order of the Latter Reign emerged to challenge the established Pentecostal hierarchy by promoting 
that the idea that God's blessings could be obtained on demand rather than by waiting for them to be bestowed on the pious. Inverting the well-worn American mantra that things must be seen to be believed, Bowler says the prosperity gospel rewards those who believe in order to see. To this day, the majority of proponents of the prosperity gospel come from the proponents of the prosperity gospel come from the Pentecostal charismatic tradition. There is one important exception, though, the Reformed Church of America minister Norman Vincent Powell, whose book, The Power of Positive Thinking, had a lot of purchase, not least on the Trump, uh, on the Trump family, who were fixtures in the front row of the New York church. Okay, so typically it comes from, okay, so this merger happened. Okay, very, okay, very good. It seems this merger began to happen. Um, when would we, when, let's see, hang on, let me, let me get a date here. The article doesn't give a date. It hints at a date, but I don't want to say, um, okay, hang on. The new deal, Franklin D. Roosevelt's new deal. Okay. What was the dating of the new deal? Don't know. It's the end of the great depression. So, um, 1920s, so you can go 1920s, 1930s, 1940s, that period of time. 1920s, 1930s, 1940s, that time. Franklin D. Roosevelt, the great, uh, the great, uh, the New Deal, the end of the Great Depression. Okay. Well, yeah, that's, that's exactly what's getting ready to happen. All right. So you have this political thing happening, the New Deal, and many look at it as, ooh, this is communism. This is, this is, this is socialism. This, this is something bad, right? So then Christians started looking for kind of a, we're going to fight against this politically. They start bringing in a political concept, right? So they bring in the political concept, and once they bring in the political concept, then a new theology began to emerge. And let me go back to the article, all right? So then at the same time, so at the same time where Christians are beginning to side with political opponents and looking at things from a political standpoint, at the very same time, this is the key paragraph, a renegade movement called New Order of the Latter Reign, emerged to challenge the established Pentecostal hierarchy by promoting the idea that God's blessings could be obtained on demand rather than by waiting for them to be bestowed on the pious. All right? So, and to this very day, the majority of the proponents of the prosperity gospel come from the Pentecostal charismatic tradition. So there was this new movement called the Order of the Latter Reign, and it began to challenge the Pentecostal hierarchy saying, hey, we don't have to, we can obtain God's blessings on demand. We can demand them and get them. All right? Uh, so that, that movement's very important. Once something of a fringe movement that was looked down upon by other evangelicals, today's Pentecostal charismatic preachers, often calling themselves non-denominational, have captured the energy of American, uh, of American and global Christianity to the point that everyone from Catholic priests to mindset influencers is embracing the Holy Spirit and its powers over mind, body, and wallet. This version of Christianity has toned down the emphasis on the afterlife for an understanding of the world here and now. Like any politician seeking election, the God of prosperity speaks to issues at the kitchen table. In other words, hey, let's stop, let's stop being so heavenly minded. Let's be more earthly minded. Let's stop being so worrying about theology and let's worry about those practical things that you talk about at the kitchen table, where the next paycheck is going to come from, where we're going to have money, how we can have prosperity, how we can have health. Because when you sit at the kitchen table, you may talk about money or health or your job or your career or your home or repairs that need to be made or your car. So why give a Christianity that goes directly to those issues? Stop worrying about theological and exegetical issues.
issues. Let's worry about these issues and tell people that if they will believe in God and they will do the right thing and exercise the right steps, then they can be blessed to fix all of those issues they talk about at the kitchen table. Because I doubt most people are sitting around the kitchen table talking about, you know, infralapsarianism or, you know, talking about, you know, different theological concepts. You know, let's talk about millennialism and, and the Protestant Reformation. I mean, no, they're talking about real life issues. So if you can give them a Christianity that says, here's the solution to those financial problems, then of course you can see why it would be embraced. For Arizona pastor Thomas Anderson, author of Becoming a Millionaire, God's Way, and CEO of The Word for Winners, biblical tales can be contextualized in modern terms. Mary and Joseph took a Cadillac to get to Bethlehem because their first transportation of their day was a donkey, he told his congregation in 2009. Poor people ate their donkey. Only the wealthy used it as transportation. So see, that's how he contextualizes the story in a way then about wealth and how to obtain wealth. And they had wealth because they were being faithful to God. They weren't poor. Well, wait a minute, what offering did they? Okay, we can get into all of that. It, it, everything is now going to be about if you're poor, you're a bum and you have no faith. But if you will exercise faith, and do what God calls you to do, you too can then become wealthy and God will bless you and who will pour out the rain of heaven upon you and you will be prosperous and healthy and wealthy. Now they're saying this new strain though. See, I think the new strain is more political. It's a mixture of the politics with the latter rain. Uh, I, I I won't say the latter rain movement since I'm not an expert. I will say it is mixing a political hostility towards the poor with the prosperity gospel, you can trace its origin, and it's mixing. So now you have a prosperity gospel mindset with a political animosity towards the poor, and boom, you get the 2023 version of the prosperity gospel. That is what they're claiming is new. And it's very antisocial because it's saying, hey, you are bums, you're poor, and we have no responsibility to offer you any help. But if you think about that, who, just theologically, what, who would adopt such a messed up system? Because if, if you are figured out the right steps and God is pouring blessing upon blessing upon blessing upon you materially, why wouldn't you want to help the bum who can't get it right? Because you can get as much as you need. So if you really took this prosperity gospel teaching to its logical conclusion, there shouldn't be any poor people because the people who know how to do the right steps for God to pour out all of the blessings would just keep doing the right steps and you would have so much that you could, well, you could pay off my mortgage payment. So for those who are in the prosperity gospel, please take the right steps and send me a check for... I think it's $80,000 I have left now, maybe 80,000. You know, send me 80,000 and if it if I don't need that much, I'll send you a return check with whatever is left over. But hey, if you've got you should it should be easy for you. All right, they go on to say this. All right, we're already 57 minutes. This has taken a long time to get through this. A modern messiah that owns nice wills is really one of victory. For some, that may be overcoming personal hardships. For others, triumph over the forces of darkness. Transport apparently being a particular preoccupation of this Jesus. Last month during a telethon fundraiser, Louisiana prosperity preacher Jesse Duplantis announced that his ministry purchased a $21 million jet. According to the Roy's report, it will sit in the driveway behind the smaller business traveler jet already owned by the ministry. They purchased a $21 million jet. All right. Okay. So why, why are we going to, why, why is he going to park it there? And he's telling everyone because it's a sign. It's a sign of faith. It's a sign of spiritual blessing. It's a sign of he's doing things God's way. So he's got to be God's man. Because he's being blessed. And if you will sow a seed into his ministry, you could be buying your own $21 million jet. So I'm going to, where's my wallet? 
I need to sign. I need to. I need to get on the Jesse Duplantis website right now and sow sow a seed into his ministry because I need some money. I don't have a wallet right now. Okay, I'm gonna find my debit card and I'm gonna give fifty dollars to Jesse Duplantis because I need my mortgage paid off. All right. So you think you think that'll work? I think it probably won't. But wouldn't it be good if it did? All right. During the same broadcast, a pastor. Jerry Savelli, S-A-V-E-L-L-E, joined the stage to announce that his ministry was seeding a $100,000 for a private jet of his own. I was sowing for the future, he said, but God told him that there's something bigger, better, faster, and more in range in your future. Handling the check Handing the check to another preacher on stage, Savelli offered the money out of my aviation account. So he's giving money. This preacher's on stage. I'm going to give money here and plant my seed so that I can get my own jet. The whole thing is so, ugh. But th- this, this is what they're saying is the new, the new. See, that to me, is that, that discussion there, that's not new. That's old. The, the, the part that's new is that's what's coming along with this new version of prosperity gospel is an animosity and hatred and a lack of concern or empathy for those who are without. That or, that, that ordinary churchgoers are happy to give money to those who are obviously, who obviously so don't need it can be confounding to many. But it speaks to people of faith living in a world where we equate value, valuing something with paying for it. We only need to look at the number of people who are willing to pay Elon Musk, one of the world's richest mans, for VIP access to his free social media site. In this sense, it would be unfair to attribute the resurgence in prosperity gospel beliefs to a lack of education found in the Lifeway study. It found that churchgoers who have a high school diploma or less were more likely... Okay, let me read this again. In In this sense, it would be unfair to attribute the resurgence in prosperity gospel beliefs to the lack of education found in the Lifeway study. It found that churchgoers who have a high school diploma or less or less were more likely to believe in the prosperity gospel, 81%, than those with bachelor's degree, 67%. That's written kind of weird. That seems to indicate it would be right. It would be fair to attribute the resurgence in prosperity gospel to a lack of education. They're saying it shouldn't be, but they just said the churchgoers who have a high school diploma or less were more likely to believe in the prosperity gospel. 81% versus 67%. So is it because of a lack of education or is it because... Now, now let's state it this way. Is it a lack of education or is it the reality of this? If you have less education, you may be in a much lower economic status. And the lower your economic status is, the more desperate you may be. Therefore, you'll give money to a preacher thinking that if you sow the seed in that ministry, then you may be able to get that prosperity. I I, I said it in the first part. I'll say it in this one. This happened to me late one night. I'm in the United States military. I'm an airman. We make no money as an airman in the military when you special have a family to raise. And I'm sitting there thinking, we have no money. How are we going to make this? What are we going to do? You know, I, it's going to be a long time before my next promotion. What am I going to do? There's no, like, I, you know, military is a full-time job. This is my career. Like, how do I support my family? And then it's like one, two o'clock in the morning. And there, I don't remember who was, who was on Christian television. And they were like, hey, if you send us money, then God will bless. And they had all of these testimonials where people needed this much money and they sent $10 into the ministry and they got it. And I was very tempted to give money. I didn't, but there was a part of me that thought, what if it would work? Now, there was nothing godly. Everything about it was pure materialism. But I was in a desperate situation there or felt desperate, but it probably wasn't as desperate as it felt at that time. But I'm like, I got a family. What am I going to do? I'm an airman in the United States military. You know, we're basically under the poverty level. Like, what do we do here? So I don't know if it's the educational level or it's the economic level. They go on to say it's easy to deride. Oh, we've made it to the end. Okay. Uh, it's easy to deride believers in the prosperity gospel as misinformed or uneducated. But for all 
of Mat- Mat- Terra and his fellow travelers' views about people living in poverty, there is a growing body of ev- evidence that the failings of the secular world are driving believers to faith-based alternatives. And this movement is going global. Research out of Brazil, where Pentecostal charismatic churches are overtaking Catholicism as the primary expression of Christianity, found that economic downturns push people towards the gospel of health and wealth and politically to more religiously conservative candidates. One man's spiritual Ponzi scheme looks like another's solidarity network. And for those who believe that there are better ways than the state to look after people, it is a powerful thing. In other words, what they're claiming is as people get more and more frustrated with secular solutions, they may look to spiritual solutions. But they're going to look to spiritual solutions, not for theology, not even for heaven, maybe not even for salvation. They're looking to spiritual solutions for their problems that they're experiencing in life, whether loneliness, depression, discouragement, or financial. And that there's an entire now modern day, this new version of the prosperity gospel is saying, hey, 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 hey. Do what we say, you'll get all the prosperity. And at the same time, you don't have to help anybody because those people don't need your help because they're poor because they're not faithful and they're not following God. So you can look down on the poor and you don't need to have any empathy, compassion for them because it's their own fault. Because if they would just be faithful, they wouldn't be in poverty. That is what they're saying is the new strain of the prosperity gospel. This is this war on evangel. Uh, this is an evangelical war on the poor. That's what they're claiming. Now, I want you to look up the article for yourself. I want you to look up two articles for yourself. All right. The first article I want you to look up is the evangelicals calling for war on poor people. The evangelicals calling for war on poor people. It's you can uh, you just do a search for it. You should be able to find it. Um, and it was published October the 23rd, 2023. All right. The evangelicals calling for war on poor people. If you cannot find it, email me newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. I will then uh, forward the link to you. And the other article is a biblical view of work, of work and war. <laughs> a biblical view of work and welfare say that three times fast. I don't know. You probably can. For some reason, I can't. A biblical view of work and welfare. And that is written by Jason Matt Terra. And he's the son of Joseph Matt Terra, one of the most influential modern prophets of the new apostolic reformation. All right. Jason Matt Terra, that's M-A-T-T-E-R-A, a biblical view of work and welfare. If you cannot find that article, email me, newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. And I will send that to you as well. And then you can read both articles and you can see, is this giving us some indication of where Christianity is headed? This to me is a mixture of political ideology and full-blown materialism with a lot of selfishness put in together. You could call it pragmatism maybe as well. That was, a, that was an hour, over an hour of work to get through, us through that. I'm sorry I did a lot of going back and putting it all together, but I wanted it all to flow together. Hopefully it was beneficial. You can let me know. Newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. Whew. That was a lot of work. I'm going to finally go find some food today. That's what I'm going to do. And you can meditate and think on all of that information and try to figure out, is this where Christianity is headed? I think there's a lot to discuss there. But after an hour of just laying it all out, I'll now place it in your capable hands and you can try to figure out what it all means. Thanks for listening. Everyone have a great day. God bless.